Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. If someone asked you about your longest day, what would you say? The Longest Day is a concise crisis podcast hosted by Broadstairs Consulting. Join founder, CEO, Leah Brown, FRSA, don't you know, as she unearths valuable leadership insights from fantastic guests that will help you prepare for your own longest day. Season one of The Longest Day is available now. Tune in from the 11th of September for season two. Hello, hi, and welcome. This is Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of Atlanta from the perspective of the other. Today, we're going to look at one issue which has got people transfixed throughout the globe for the last eight, nine months. This new thing has broken forth in the public consciousness. It's AI. So what we're going to do today is navigate the present to shape the future. Today, I am your host, Royful Brown, who is in the middle of nowhere in Wales. And I'll tell you what, it's wonderful. Rolling green hills, sheep, barring and cows mooing. It's all of that. Tractors everywhere. It is wondrous. Now, today I have a powerhouse panel discussing the subject of AI. Today I have with me Laura Babcock from Hamilton in Canada. She's back. Z Cohen Sanchez, a political strategist over there in Nevada. Logan Phillips is our political pollster in DC. We have a journalist, David Velosco, who is in Seattle. And we have Doug Levy, a freelance writer and communication strategy expert in San Francisco. I don't know why I said and, because bringing up the rear, but by no means the least for that, we have Denise Hamilton, a diversity speaker, and Ted Speaker in Houston, in Texas. Sundar, I wonder what keeps you up at night around this issue of AI? The urgency to work and deploy it in a beneficial way. 
But at the same time, it can be very harmful if deployed wrongly. And we don't have all the answers there yet, and the technology is moving fast. So does that keep me up at night? Absolutely. Can you keep up with that speed of innovation and make sure it remains on, if you will, a human scale? I think one of the things we need to be careful when it comes to AI is avoid what I would call race conditions, where people working on it across companies, etc., so get caught up in who's first that we lose pitfalls and downsides to it. You are going slowly in terms of rolling out BARD. I wonder if you think OpenAI and Microsoft acted irresponsibly. There are many views. I think one of the points they've made is, you know, you don't want to put a technology out like this when it's very, very powerful because it gives society no time to adapt. I think, I think there are responsible people there trying to figure out how to approach this technology, and so are we. So today, we're going to dive deep into how we feel about generative artificial intelligence or AI. AI models learn patterns and their structure from input data and then are capable of generating text, images and other media to our various prompts. We know what it is. We're not going to question what exactly is AI. The first question is a very simple one. I just want to go around and speak to people on the panel. David, I want to start with you. You're a journalist. You're a man of words and of letters. How is, have you used AI in the last nine months? Mm, no, not really. I've used it once. I used I used Quillbot, which paraphrases passages, but I used it out of curiosity, not actually for work. I've played around with it a little bit. I've gone into chat GPT to say things, write an essay about this just to see what it would do. But I don't actually make any use of that. I'm just curious how the technology works. And also I to, to be aware of some of the particular applications in journalism. But no, I've never actually used it and then taken that and applied it in some. In some you, you've not used it professionally at all, just purely no. every curiosity. Yeah. And sometimes I notice I did once ask it to do some research for me and I've done that a few times. The problem is it doesn't always, you don't always know where the information's coming from. So then you have to go and fact check that anyway. So then you end up doing the research anyway. But recently I, I did that actually today before this session. And I asked it to, to do some research on this topic. And this time there were footnotes that I could follow. So I thought that was interesting. That, so there's a potential that it, it could be useful for research purposes. And you can, you can click and check to see where the information's coming from. Gotcha. Same question to you, Z. I'm going to go around everybody and just test the water and see how exactly you are using AI, if at all. So Z Sanchez, what can you tell us? <laughs> I do not use AI at all. I've never used it. And I definitely don't plan on using it uh, for a multitude of reasons I'm sure we'll get into. All right. So you're not knowingly using it. So when you take a picture uh, with your smartphone, you're using AI. You know what? I will. I'll go back on that. I did use AI one time to do that cool thing where they make your pictures into art, which I thought was actually cool. I've used it once officially. Drums. There we go. You've opened a can of worms. Is it art? Uh, Laura Babcock. First off, though, a couple of prompts into Chat GPT or something else similar. It generates an image. Is that art? And then, have you used that tool and or another AI tool professionally? Is it art? I think art is in the eye of the beholder. So sure, it's new kind of art. 
it's based on other ways of coming to the art other than the eye of a human, but that doesn't make it less art. There, in fact, there's a Canadian who takes Canadian history and uses AI to produce all kinds of images of past prime ministers as rock stars and everything else. And he's had a huge following and probably done a lot of good making history more interesting. So I, I think it can have an application there. In terms of my work in public relations, I write a lot of media releases and other documents. And what I found interesting is the Grammarly check that I would usually run as a last step on anything that I write. Now it has some AI features to it where it tries to fill in gaps and tries to assess how to make your argument stronger. What I've noticed, though, is that it keeps asking the same thing and making the same prompt. So initially, it sounds as though it's being insightful. But the more times you use it, you realize that it's always just the same stuff. And, and it often, as I find with AI, it doesn't have a lot of context, right? So it tends to start to sound dumb and you just end up ignoring it anyway because it just doesn't have the breadth and the depth. But one thing that I will note is when for my TV show, The O Show, I had I was dealing with a question around how to handle the homeless crisis in our city. And a viewer actually sent me an AI generated report based on that very question. And as I was reading through it, I found two things to be true. It seemed as comprehensive as anything that I'd seen come out of our city government, which I thought was interesting, how much money can be saved if AI is producing those kinds of reports where it just brings together information. But something that I saw that was creepy was I had done some media releases for different clients over the last year or two on the issue, and I could actually see some of my language from a media release actually being used by AI in the report. But just it, it was an odd feeling to feel like my own words were being taken and used in that way. So you are feeding the machine. All yeah, that's the machine stolen from you. Yeah, it feels a little weird when you see that. And then I went and I checked back and I thought, no, that's my exact word sequence. So you, we can go into this the dystopia of AI. I've watched a lot of AI movies and I have a lot of concerns about it on the bigger impact on humanity. But just that one experience of seeing it using my words in a different application, it's a bit odd. Tim was, was also interesting that the New York Times wrote that article about open AI, I believe, in kind of early December. And that is when, for most people who aren't, let's say, hardcore techies, that's when we really played around with ChatGPT and then all the other generative AI platforms. But actually, Grammarly is AI. We all have been playing with this technology, mm -hmm. not really being aware of it. We all go on into our Gmail and it suggests the second or the third word. It's been doing that for a good couple of years. Absolutely. Where I feel if I can just add one other thing, which came up in my work and was an absolute shock to some clients I shared it with. I was doing a radio panel on the latest information on the Zoom I don't know how much you guys use Zoom, but it's pretty huge here since the pandemic. And the fact that the new Zoom terms of operation or terms and conditions includes that all content on Zoom, any meeting, whether it's an AA meeting or a business meeting or anything else or personal friends meeting, they take that information and they share it with their AI bots to learn. We are massively feeding AI. And I don't think a lot of people are even aware of that. They actually had to change that because lots of folks were uncomfortable with it for good reason. Doug, great interjection there, sir. Why don't you tell us, Doug, if you use AI knowingly? I do. I have been, since I covered tech for a while, I've been following this for a long time and certainly was early on experimenting with some of the tools, gosh, even 10 years ago, where honestly, they didn't impress me that much. 
But I could see the value at the enterprise level. And there, I know we'll talk about some of this later on. Currently, I'm mostly experimenting. I haven't found too many practical uses. I have found some disturbing results in a few cases. So I'm definitely not trusting the systems. But they're, some of the tools are useful if you're just trying to come up with different ways to say the same thing. It's not bad at that. I played with a tool this morning where I dictated random thoughts that I wanted to send to a local official, and the system gave me the response that it was recommending I send in verse, which was really weird. And I'm wow. not sending a poem to my town council. I think I just needed to scroll down to a different option where it was giving me, here's a poem, or if you just want a straight email, try this. I've used ChatGPT a fair amount. I have colleagues and friends who swear that these tools are really useful for research. They're helpful, but they're also notoriously unreliable. So to give ideas, great. But you've got to vet the stuff yourself if you're going to use it. Doug, the, the, the tool's awesome. But, but, but I'll come on to how you can uh, make sure that it's not just hallucinating, which is what, what you've alluded to later. Uh, let, let's go through uh, the, the rest of the panel, then we can properly start. Uh, Logan, my good friend over there in, in D.C., uh, when you're doing your website race to the White House and you're crunching all the poll data, do you have room? Do you have a utility for AI? Yeah, yeah, I do. And this started basically in May. At that point, I was behind it on the AI uh, technology growth scene, especially in the last few years. And I was talking to one of my interns and he was going through all the things he uses it for. And I could just tell Roy Phil that I was at a turning point, right? Because I was 29, just turned 30. And I'm like, I can't be at the point already where I'm getting behind on the technological curve and then be forever behind Gen Z on this latest innovation. So uh, I decided to start using ChatGPT, got a subscription. I've been trying to teach myself and learn a lot more about the developments. And honestly, I found a lot of uses for it. It's a great counterbalance to my ADD sometimes. Um, you know, I can come with a lot of writer's block. And so everything I put on my site is going to be my words. But sometimes I'll have it take a stab at something I'm thinking of. And even if I hate it, it just helps me see how this is what it looks like. I'll, I'll do the same thing for emails. You can, once you're paying for it, you can add all these plugins and I use it to figure out. A big part of my business is to get people to search my site so when they're looking for something online, Race to the White House comes up and that's been useful too. Yeah, it's like it helps a lot the executive tasks that I can be a little weaker at. But like the substantive, more ideas driven thing, I, I still want that stuff to be coming from me. Gotcha. And you say you have a ADHD and I'm most definitely a dyslexic. And for me, this thing is a total godsend. But we'll come on to that later. Denise Hamilton, are you AI'd up? I am so AI'd up. I use it almost every day. I believe that if it's learning, I want it to learn from me. So I make sure I interact with ChatGPT and other tools like that on a regular basis because I like to offer up pushback and correction when I see that there's information that's not correct. Also, for me, as a small business owner, it is it's just levels the playing field unbelievably. I was on social media the other day and I saw a picture of Scott Galloway and he was celebrating. He was at a dinner party with all of his staff and he was like, thanks so much for my team. So glad to be working with such an amazing group. Wish everyone could be here. So this wasn't even his whole team. And the picture was of him and 12 people at his table. 
And that was really sobering for me because I have a small team of three. How am I going to compete with somebody who is VC funded, VC backed? How am I going to make sure my ideas are out there, that my production is of a certain level that I can compete with larger organizations? And for me, ChatGPT has been extremely powerful in giving me the ability to produce things much quicker. And I would say, help me lean into my humanity. It has taken off the off of my docket stuff that was a waste of my time, quite frankly, and giving me more time to think about the things that I really need to lean into, writing, creating content, organizing my thoughts, doing um, better and deeper research. I have more time to do those things because I let the AI do the things that are of lower importance. And quite frankly, I'm just mediocre at the performance of. Couldn't agree with you more, sister. I endorse all of that. Also being a small business owner uh, myself, anything that means I can be more productive and actually turn out better work, I'm all up for. To a greater or lesser degree, we all have at least played with the tool, if not used it truly in anger. Uh, Logan, as, as our pollster, there have been a few studies. I know the Pew Research Center did a study. But what does America think about AI? Are they pro? Are they anti? Is it dystopian? Is it utopian? Or is it something which is only going to come and disrupt the industry and the jobs of your next door neighbor, not yours? What does the great Americans think about AI? I think that sometimes our relationship to new technologies says as much about where we are as people and as a country as it does about the technology. And Americans are at a time where they're a little less optimistic, which is unusual for us, and more nervous about the future and the present. And it definitely reflects in the AI as well. So your 37% say they're more concerned than excited about AI. 18% um, say they're more nervous. And that's probably the more generous poll you're going to see. Now, a lot of people feel both, right? But there's a lot of anxiety about maybe the worst case scenarios, how it could spiral out of control. And generally, consistently on topic after topic, and I saw you, I saw the same thing in the United Kingdom as well when I was looking at polling there. Um, people like the idea of AI doing some of the basic stuff. They do not want to have it be in charge of things that society depends on, where they really need to trust that it's going to get it right. So whenever that's anything related to the military, people are very uncomfortable with that. Um, but also things like nurses or doctors like even like basic functions of checking on a patient they don't want ai to touch that now maybe you will be okay with ai being involved but they want the human to have the final say the same thing was true um i think you know fellow journalists might be happy to hear this with journalists right like maybe ai can mean the process but they don't want the ai being the final say the one who's writing the piece itself because you know they don't want a society where that's where they're getting their information from if we look back at uh, the story of advanced economies since 1750, the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, um, each new wave, which has made uh, the engine more efficient or spawned a new technology, is fundamentally it's disrupted the work patterns of blue collar workers. So we had the Luddites in the uh, 18 teens who smashed up uh, the new machines which were just more productive because they said well what is there going to be left for us to do and i think this is the first time we can clearly see that white collar jobs are going to be affected by this new technology david i remember listening to a podcast about five years ago 
somebody was talking about AI and the journalist confidently said, my job will be safe. You'll always need somebody to write articles. That is not the case. Or is it? As a journalist, as somebody who's worked for many August publications, are you worried that your career could be stymied by AI? Yeah, of course. I think I think you have to be. Maybe a few years ago, I might have said something like what you just mentioned. There's AI can do a lot of things, but it can't do style or art, or it can't do high level editing. But I don't, I don't think I would say that anymore. And maybe it's not there yet, but I think we're at least at a point where we can imagine that it it will get there. We'll get to a point where it can also do elegant style a very well. I've already seen examples of okay poetry, and in the future, I can imagine it actually doing good poetry. I've seen prose that I thought was elegant. And of course, it's harvesting and learning and just regurgitating, but doing it better and better. And I think at a certain point, there's going to be articles out there that are that are doing the things that we think of as the realm where only humans can operate. There's already been, and, and I'm just talking about the things that some people might argue, I can't do that. But there's also a lot of things that AI is already doing that is that would not be artistic, elegant writing or high-level editing or what have you. For instance, this past April, there was there was an essay I think by Chris Moran at the at the Guardian who wrote about how ChatGPT is making up fake Guardian articles and it's pretty straight news stories. So, with but with also with invented quotes from experts, and the the prose of the story is simple and clean. So it's not that impressive that it was able to do it, but it's definitely alarming that. AI is now able to pump out news stories, and that's definitely a huge. That's a huge part of what journalists do. Wires could already just be completely AI. News stories, straight news pieces, could be done by AI at this point. The more literary stuff, the your New Yorker articles, things of that nature, not yet. But again, I think it's a matter of time. And then it's just a matter of then it just comes down to a financial decision by the people that own the outlets as to do we. Are readers going to be interested in this? Are they actually going to want to read AI content? And balancing that against the cost of of having these writers versus... But I think if they see that readers will read it and do like it and like it as much, then there really is going to be a problem because of the cost analysis there, obviously. So yeah, to answer your question, uh, I think it's reasonable to be concerned about this. Laura, if we have AI generating articles, and I know that the Press Association in the UK, AP, Reuters, they're all using AI uh, for, for bog standard bits of news. They're using this already. But if we can just generate content, aren't we going to end up with a bit of a content tsunami? And And if we end up in such a place whereby there's actually just too much stuff and it's quite repetitive and quite derivative, what happens to media in such a scenario? That's a great question. And let me just preface it by, I feel like uh, we're being maybe necessarily, but a little bit like we're rearranging the chairs on the Titanic (laughs) with this discussion. Because from what I understand from the guy who created this stream of AI, which is dominating now that we're seeing, the one who quit uh, so that he could come out in his 70s and explain exactly the monster that he had built 
uh, he's talking about the fact that it's a biological AI. So it is not just learning information and building more information. It is actually learning how to learn. And as it learns how to learn, it's not going to be a matter of just pushing out redundant stuff or stuff that isn't that impressive. It's going to actually be creating new things. And so I think at that point, it's a completely different conversation than the one we might be having now. In terms of the media, if it's able to generate news, if it's able to do news reading, which it's already doing, if you watch the Trump indictments like we watch here in North America, they actually have AI-generated reads of the indictments on podcasts, right? So you've already got AI reading this stuff. And except for a couple of words where it doesn't get the nuance or the exact pronunciation, you wouldn't even know that it's not a human news reading voice. So I think that the news media, at least the traditional legacy media, is very much under siege already. AI is going to make some of the work reporters do redundant. It's going to make news readers redundant. On every industry, I think that does things around writing and collecting data, AI is going to make some of those jobs redundant. It's going to be extremely disruptive. And then we're already seeing that with graphic artists, right? Why get why pay someone to do a website when AI can do one for you in a few minutes? That's how they launched or, or made their announcement around how far the technology had advanced a few months ago. So I know a lot of people were very concerned in the media and in those other kind of creative businesses that AI is going to take hold of their career. And look at what's happening with the writer's strike in the US, one of their biggest concerns were that AI was going to take over some of the jobs of writers and people who put together movies. So I don't think we have any clue, to be honest, how fast this technology is going to move um, with us and past us. And how do you ride that horse once it's out of the barn? I think there might be some good applications across things like maybe healthcare and hopefully climate mitigation science and other things that we need. But I do think that it's going to very much change the way that my kids find a job in 10 years, maybe the way that we even have conversations like this. Absolutely, absolutely. The only thing I'd caution you on when you say 10 years, unless your children are 10 years away from actually finding a job, it is going to happen a, a whole lot sooner. Yeah, they are. They're 10 years old. <laughs> so they're, they're 12, 14. That's why I'm saying that when they're in their careers. But no, it is happening already, right? It's doing lawsuits. It's basic lawsuits it can do. It can do all kinds of things that a lot of people I know got paid for, that that's their business. And so I know for my business, I'm moving towards more consultative training things that AI couldn't possibly do because it doesn't have the wisdom and experience that we accrue as we move through our careers. And it doesn't have the original thought or perspectives, right, that we have as humans. But I can tell you many things that I'm involved with now, there's either awkward jokes at the start or people are having to qualify. No, this is not AI. This is me. This is original. And that is that's a little alarming. Let's be real. I don't want to be a Luddite here on the call, but I'm quite alarmed with how quickly it's taking over different workspaces. Those are all concerns that I share. It's probably not great for me. I'm expecting to eventually move on to something else. And this is part of it. That being said, though, there's some real power to this that I think can be incredibly positive. And I think a good way to think about it is along the lines of the internet, right? If, if you're in the 1800s and you had some weird but incredibly easy fixable medical issue that could threaten your life, maybe there were only going to be a hundred people in your country that would have known what to do and chances are they're not there and so you're toast. Or now you just have the power of Google, you can find an easy answer and get moving, right? And so this is in a similar vein. It's going to provide such immense power and skill set to everyone in the world that has access to it 
So the things that each individual person will be able to create that they otherwise may not have the education or the skill set to be able to do whenever it's writing or art and graphics or frankly, many things we're not really conceiving of at this stage, I think in a way could be potentially extremely positive. It's going to really suck for the people that had those specialized skills that set them apart and that were making a living on it. But my guess is at least on that front, it probably ends up being more of a positive. I, if I could just respond, uh, I was speaking to an expert in the future of education and work, uh, and they were telling me that AI will absolutely disrupt all those kind of jobs that become redundant. But in their opinion, the applications for AI for all kinds of other jobs and other sharing of knowledge and taking us to the next level, they find very positive and very exciting. So they're seeing that in higher education, how it's already reshaping what people need to learn and want to learn, but that while it might be painful at first, those jobs might actually be redundant and, and there'll be other opportunities. I just do want to add in though one little thing that I saw, and maybe I'm taking you off course here, Royfield, but I think it's germane to the comment that was just made. And that is that when there, I think it was a British journalist who was at a robotics and AI trade show recently, and they asked an AI robot what was the nightmare scenario for robotics and AI vis-a-vis the human race. And the robot considered it carefully and said, I think there'll be all kinds of positive applications in terms of healthcare and et cetera. But the nightmare scenario will be that you become us without knowing it. And I that has always stuck with me. <laughs> What's going to be really interesting is to see how we're going to change as people as we have this powerful tool in our grasp. Either we will control the tool or the tool will control us. And the reality is that's always been the case with every technology. People that step in to embrace it and figure out how to wield it surpass those who um, resist it and um, bemoan it. And so I think what I've tried to challenge in myself is that resistance or that desire to like to, to maintain the status quo and to look at what the possibilities are and to look at what the opportunities are. I am extremely optimistic. I do not believe that AI will replace human beings, but I do believe that humans who can wield AI will replace humans that cannot. But history tells us that it will replace some human beings. I, I think, with, as, as I said, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, it comes in Britain in around about 1750. By 1820, the machines get more efficient. You have the cotton gin in America, which actually gives slavery a second wind. You have those loom workers in Lancashire who are smashing these machines up because there is a new technology. And it did mean that the old way of working was redundant. So it will replace people in specific jobs. The question well, is, what are going to be the, the new jobs, the new industries of which we can't even think? And here I am doing a podcast, which was unthinkable 30 years ago. The amount of technology I would have needed to connect to all the people on this stage was out of the realms of of a regular person. I'd need a broadcast studio. But Denise, hold that thought. Um, Z, I quickly want to come to you because one of the promises of AI is enhanced personalization, something which we have seen on the internet to date. When I log on, and let's say if I type in Egypt into Google, and then you type in the same term, Egypt, we want to get very different results. 
But specifically in the realm of politics, which is where you work, you build campaigns for people who are running for the Congress or the Senate, etc. With this incredibly personalized experience in terms of who is going to be reading these messages, what does that do for a political digital strategist? Is this, wow, this means we can really focus our message to the nth degree? Or is this a, a, a bit of a worry in terms of the message could well be lost with various levels of customization and personalization? Yeah, I think it's already getting lost. And this is a big part of the problem that we're seeing now. We've already seen this affect our business personally. Two years ago, we had almost, what, 15 people working in our digital department. Now we have one. And the reason for that is because all of this new AI technology. So now there's a a huge AI technology that's taking over email. So instead of you, like traditionally back in the political world, either you would hire your person internally to do email on your campaign, or you would outsource it, you know, to a firm like ours to do it. Now they don't see the use of that. Why pay somebody $3,000 a month, $5,000 a month to run email full time when they can just go purchase this? I I can't remember the name of the company, but they were recently uh, pitching at Networks Nation and they're doing emails for folks like Adam Schiff, who's running for U.S. Senate. Whereas I said back in the day, not even six months ago, that was a full-time campaign job. Same thing goes for digital. There's like we were talking about graphic design, the marketing plans, which ChatGBT is is becoming a p- big part of now. All those jobs in the political world are slowly disappearing. And I do think that it's if this technology was making it better, right, if we were able to connect with voters better, we then I would be all for it. But the problem is that we're not. So I can tell when I get an email from a campaign, if it's a chat GBT email or if it's written by a real person. And I think that with how disconnected we are with campaigns between campaigns and voters already, like to add that extra layer of disconnection is not going to help us win elections. In fact, it's I think it's going to really destroy campaigning in a way. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Jeffrey Hinton, the sometimes called godfather of artificial intelligence, is trying to explain its risks to the world. Imagine working your entire adult life to build a better future. I think we're going to see the learning methods we've got already have dramatic effect on many industries and solve lots of problems. Where computers and machine learning make life better for humans. These chatbots answer complicated questions, draft emails and speeches. Then realizing that the creation is nearing a point where it could do a type of harm that cannot be undone. That's the realization that hit Hinton when he was working for Google. Because of his job, he couldn't talk. So he quit his job, and now he talks. I think people are alternately excited to hear from you and a bit afraid. Should they be? I think there are things to be worried about. There's all the normal things that everybody knows about, but there's another threat that's rather different from those, which is if we produce things that are more intelligent than us, 
How do we know we can keep control? And what tends to happen when... Well, if we're talking about evolution, all these species are evolving, and what tends to happen is it doesn't go well for the less intelligent species. The other one kills it? Not necessarily. Ants look after aphids because they produce honey. Um, but Ants are in charge. Ants are in charge, yes. Ants, in this analogy, in case that wasn't ominously clear enough, are not the humans. I want to come to Doug about specifically transportation, then um, over over to you, Laura. Uh, Doug, I think the first time that I think people generally truly understood artificial intelligence, I want to say people, the general public, was with the promise of driverless cars. And nobody can spend more than five minutes on a San Franciscan street in downtown without seeing these driverless cars, up until quite recently, with a driver going up and down the roads 24-7. Literally, whenever I had a friend come to San Francisco, I'd I'd have to say, we've got to go to downtown, you're going to see a driverless car. In the last week and a half, the future has happened in San Francisco. We now have driverless taxis. How has San Francisco taken to the future? Interestingly, the city itself is not so happy with it and is challenging the state agency that gave the blessing for the driverless taxis. And I believe the authorization goes beyond San Francisco. I think it might be statewide. But whatever the case, personally, I'm still a little bit uneasy with the concept. However, I have learned, in fact, years ago, I found out from people that I know in law enforcement that the driverless cars, the automated cars, are actually, and, and the data does support this, better drivers than most of us humans. And they're not perfect by any means, but statistically and over the longer haul, the more we let the computers do the driving and rely less on humans to make judgments, which are often not good ones, the safer we'll be on the road. But it's an interesting point, though, isn't it, about don't just want a car or a plane, a train. So I'm just going to bury us from point A to point B. We won't accept it being as good as a human. It surely has to be significantly better for us to feel safe with this technology. David, what do you reckon? I'm very excited about the possibilities there. I think in some ways you could argue that being as good as a human is better than being a human in the sense that one of the leading causes of of traffic deaths, and that is such a serious issue in the United States, such a a top cause of deaths overall. But if, if, if a machine can drive as well as a human, but the machine is never going to drive drunk, it's already better than a human in that sense. And if, if we all just switched over at that point, then we would eliminate all drunk driving. And that, for me, would be enough because that is such an enormous cause of road deaths that I think... And I say drunk driving, I should have said driving under the influence because there's so many other types of... I, I saw statistics recently that in some cities now, as some states are legalizing marijuana, that up to 30% of DUIs are now other things, marijuana and other drugs. But just removing all of driving under the influence is huge. And so if the vehicles are driving at the level of humans, that alone would be massive, in my opinion. 
And I agree. And I, I think, though, about the trucking industry, especially in North America, how many millions of people have that as a job who aren't skilled in other jobs and, and may well be replaced because it's still a massive industry and they're trying to automate it. So there will be a disruption for sure for a lot of people who are already in that business of transportation. I just want to, before I get we get further in this panel discussion, I alluded earlier to the godfather of this strain of AI, and it's Jeffrey Hinton, if people aren't available or aren't aware of it. And I just point the audience to listen to or to watch an interview that he did with Jake Tapper on CNN a few months ago. And it was quite shocking because Jake Tapper said to him, what do we do about this? How do we, to a point that was made earlier, how do we harness this? How do we look to the opportunities of AI and be able to really be optimistic about it and harness it and control it. And he said, you never will because it it's going to be smarter than we are. And he said in, in history, in human history, when it, or in history, whenever something is smarter than something else, it tends to dominate. And these are his words. I'm poorly paraphrasing it, Royfield. Jake Tapper kept going back and saying, yeah, but what can we do to control it? How do we wield the power as opposed to it wielding us? And uh, its its founder said it, it doesn't make sense logically to think that we will ultimately wield it. So I, I don't say that to be terrifying anybody, but it, it was a really in-depth, interesting interview. And there were others like that with the founder of this. And I think it's important when you understand to understand strategy and opportunity to go to the person who created it and see what they believe to be its applications and its limitations going forward. You've taken me neatly on to where I want to go. So well done for, for shepherding me to where I wanted to go with this, which is to talk about the concentration of power and government policy and welfare. If we are going to have a situation whereby one or two, not one or two, let's say five or six, seven or eight companies are writing code, and I know a lot of this is open source and you can amend it for your own purposes, but fundamentally... One or two companies are, A, writing this code, which is going to dominate industrial economic output the world over. Also, and they are writing code, which ultimately is reflective of us, i.e. with our sexism, misogyny, ignorance, racism, etc., we this is where we need our politicians to stand up because there will be ethical considerations ethical dilemmas based around transparency based around who owns the content which this thing is actually learning from logan i've thrown in ethical considerations i've thrown in a concentration of power government policy and welfare you're a smarter man than me where do we go looking at these three specific issues you're being a little generous there Royfield, but i appreciate it in your description to me there it's going to be tough especially in the u.s which is where a lot of this technology though not all of it is coming from we struggle a lot when it comes to having technology that is dealing with legislation that's dealing with fast moving technology our senators our congressmen tend to be pretty old they're a little behind the curve however there is a lot of fear about AI getting out of control in the political world right now, and that is bipartisan. And you can see it also in the polls, and politics tends to reflect people's concerns. So I think there's some movement for legislation. I'm just a little concerned about the ability to write the right type of legislation that's going to be responsive to where the technology is heading instead of just where the technology is today or perhaps where it was 
six months ago. That's always been a struggle. Now, in regards to dealing with some of the thornier ethical issues, especially when it comes to race, to be honest, it's not necessarily the best time on the U.S. end because we're in one of these cycles that America tends to go through all the time, right? Where we have a lot of progress on race, especially in the way people are thinking and talking about it in the case of the 2020 mass protests. And every time we go for one of these, there's always a backlash in the aftermath and getting legislation passed is just impossible because now views on race and white identity politics, it's like one of the central divides in our system. And you got to get stuff through a house that's not going to be on board. And the senators, maybe that's not their thing as much in the GOP, but you still need 60 votes in American politics to get something like that passed. So that's good. I don't think we're going to have a good answer from a legislation standpoint on that front when it comes to ensuring that AI isn't promoting racism. The racism and sexism is a very big concern. And one of the things that has really astounded me in my experiments with some of the uh, AI tools is built-in racism, sexism, and other just not good stuff, including actually in the example that I gave earlier where I asked for some I asked one of the bots to write a letter to my town council for me. I didn't mention anything about immigrants having anything to do with the issue that I was raising, but the response that it drafted for me did. It's, oh my God, this is so not okay. It is so presumptive and wrong and building on those stereotypes, perpetuating stereotypes. Now, I'm smart enough to know not to send that. I'm not going to send something that's not factual, but lots of other people will. This is the caustic parrots problem that former Google ethical AI team co-leader Tim McGebru was fired over. So one side of the problem that we're discussing is like how AI can produce this, this racist and sexist content. But another problem is that when AI is used to police or regulate such content and it doesn't always know how to do that. And yet it's being trusted to do that by some of the biggest social media platforms. There's some real life consequences to this. People are losing their lives. It's little things like, for instance, I was talking to Gabriel Timnit about these issues actually. And so it could be something as simple as slang in a language that Google Translate doesn't translate. And so if you just put the AI to it and say, okay, look out for any genocidal rhetoric in this part of the world, it's going to completely miss it because we're trusting AI too much and it's not quite there yet. And so there's just that other side of the coin of not only is it producing racist content, but it's giving a green light to racist genocidal rhetoric because it's not at the point yet where for various reasons, not only slang in another language that it can't translate, but for various reasons, just not yet able to understand what genocidal rhetoric always looks like. And genocidal rhetoric is just one example, but just to make the point that it's both about producing, but also regulating and, and stopping these things. We, we really shouldn't trust the AI as much as we, we already are to a great degree by some of these massive platforms. Uh, Z, I'm going to throw the last uh, question to you, and then I'm going to quickly throw this open because I know that there seems to be some level of skepticism as to whether politicians can actually really be ahead of this and if you look at the subject of ai this is this technology is moving incredibly fast but if you look at just about anything since really the birth of the internet i think uh, washington has been very slow at, in terms of understanding the wider implications of, of, of this new technology isn't this a case where 
the gerontocracy, which fundamentally seems to be in charge of American politics, is inadequate in terms of their understanding and just their use of this new technology to affect any level uh, of policing it. And if that is the case, where does any level of policing of AI start? Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, I think that this is going to happen at the federal level. And and it's unfortunate that it's going to have to happen at the federal level because, as you were saying, we have the average age of, of folks that are sitting in Congress in the U.S. Senate is beyond ridiculous right now. We have folks that like Dianne Feinstein and these people that are 90 years old and hardly know how to use the internet, yet alone can even conceptualize AI. So, and we've been talking about this for a long time at Seoul and through other organizations as well, of the importance of getting younger people into office. Because if we don't have younger people in office, then go, we're not going to see any policing of AI until it's completely out of control, until it's racist and sexist and doing all the things that it shouldn't be doing. Um, and, and at that point, it could be too late. So uh, I think this is more of an argument for getting younger people elected. And that's work that we're doing and, and some other organizations are doing, but we need more people to be willing to run and be willing to run at the federal level to be able to tackle some of these issues. Ben, over to you. What's your one point? I think it is better used as a tool as a result of a technology development. And for that matter, humans have always been using tools and rely on tools, such as steam engine, airplanes, and cars, with a manual stick shift, if you will. So relying on these type of tools is really not something new. The issue that I see with AI nowadays is that if you use a car analogy, drivers that are driving cars, they may not be properly trained or licensed, if you will, in the sense that they probably don't understand what AI really is what it can really do and the things that it, it is good at and things that it is not good at. A case example of the chat GPT example that somebody else raised early on, incorporating a lot of the perhaps racist language. Ben, Ben, uh, listen, Ben, I'm going to quickly jump in because I, I just want to make sure that everybody has their moment in the sun. But surely the analogy uh, about tools, I think, is a good one. But I think what you're saying is absolutely incorrect. And if you look at, let's say, the dawn of the Iron Age, that was a slow, gradual process throughout the globe. It wasn't as if one day we we're all walking around with flint with flint weapons and then the next day every human being got given a iron knife. If that had happened, there would have been total chaos societal collapse could we'd be stabbing and killing everybody we wouldn't know how to use these tools and this is the problem with ai that its adoption is going to happen so fast that our politicians our employers us as just regular citizens are playing catch up with this new technology because it's unprecedented the speed that it's coming to our lives rick sanchez what is your one point sir I've just been using ChatGPT. I'm actually taking a class in writing, and one of the assignments is to do object writing. So they just give you a word, and you write for 10 minutes about an object, and you want to put smell, taste, feel, every sense of what that word invokes in you. I tried a ChatGPT, gave ChatGPT the assignment, it gave me four paragraphs in 
maybe five seconds, but I don't learn it. But it did a really good job of it. It's a prompt, Rick. It's a prompt. It's it, it, giving you suggestions. It, and that is where you can use it as a springboard, surely. But, Rick, this is a conversation which... Absolutely. But will people do that? That's, that's I think that's the issue. The people who will keep their humanity in terms of what they're creating, they will absolutely do that. I can't remember who said earlier on, but... When you get a press release or a, a bit of writing, which is purely just generated from from AI, it is soulless. So you've got to be able to harness the prompts and then be able to then inject your humanity, your creativity, your insight on top of that. Rebecca of the Blacks, welcome back to the app. I haven't seen you in quite some time. Rebecca, what is your one point? Make it really <laughs> quickly because we have Dr. Keish and we have Eric and we're going to wrap this room up. Oh, yeah, sure. So the reason why I haven't, been around is because I've literally been in the world of AI. San Francisco, I'm going to be doing a TED Talk. So I actually work for a company called Create Lab Ventures. And so we, what we say is we are the AI tool that everybody's looking for because we center inclusivity and ethics. And we also consult with other companies to audit their AI models. So part of the issue is red teaming. Red teaming is the way that you actually audit AI tools and AI models to ensure that as they as the data set is what it is, which is by default going to be reflecting the bias, you can then um, by design insert new data models inside the data set so that it is more reflective of the ethics and, and the mindfulness that you want the tool to do. That's one. And then two, I also think the issue is when you look at the frontier model, which is the open AI, all the, the big eight in, in the generative AI field when they gather together and said what they want to do, what their North Star for ethics and inclusivity is, it's toothless. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do because, again, a lot of times big tech are the ones that are lobbying these same politicians that we're going to want to regulate AI. Ultimately, what it is, is capitalism and the rush to give an answer as quickly as possible. It's, it's going to become a spectator sport of how quickly generative AI can out-human a human. Right. So then the question is, what are we as actual humans going to do to ensure the integrity of our humanity and push the humans in office to actually push back on the rapidity of what AI can do? Because most people are just going to be mesmerized by the, the fastness and the vastness of AI and not actually see how it, it is. We can talk. Anybody who wants to reach out to me, it's, it's coming for people's jobs. And I am not saying that. Um, and you can hear that in my voice. I'm not saying that. As a doomsday scenario, I'm just saying that by all of the the research that I've been doing and, and the rooms that I've been in, that that there there are people who are selling AI models to literally do your job. <laughs> That's the new job. The new job is to sell a tool to eliminate an entire department. Period. Uh, so thank thank you for that. Just moving quickly on, Dr. Keisha, uh, can you make your point um, in one minute? And then we're going to have Eric, and then we're going to quickly wrap this room up. Uh, Dr. Keisha, my good friend, over to you. Hi, Kira Royfield. I'm glad I'm in here, and I'm glad Rebecca is back, um, at least for a minute. Listen, um, I have a house, a medical AI house, and we actually use the term augmented AI because it's actually been around in medicine since the 70s, being helped with um, diagnosing or using certain antibiotics or which one is the best one for a patient. So for me, in the right hands is when it can become powerful or become harmful. We have regulations in medicine already. The question is, number one, are we, are we, do we have biases or what biases are being put into 
the machine learning that we're using, the tools, the algorithms, and what is the output we're getting, right? And I think in the right hands and also the right users where it can be powerful, it's already being used in diagnostic, like in pathology to diagnose cancer. With imaging, there are already CT scans, and there's a doctor on here that came on and said that his group is already actually using it. But it's not to replace so far in medicine because, of course, ethically and legally, there is an MD or there's a doctor, someone overseeing these tools. So it's not a replacement. It's more of an enhancement as well as making our job easier and decreasing errors. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Keach. I know that it was it radiology that already the technology is actually better than a human, in, in, specifically in that sphere. And I'm sure there are other medical spheres where already, technically speaking, people could be made uh, redundant. Eric, you have the honour of asking the last question, but Eric, I beg you, sir, I beseech you, be quick. I fully embrace our future robot overlords simply because I don't think they can do any worse than the people who are in charge right now. And in summary, I actually fear the legislature that would be regulating AI more than I fear AI. The end. There you go. That That's a way uh, to sign off the room. Obviously, this topic needed a little bit longer than the regular mid-Atlantic hour. So if you're listening to this at home, hopefully you're still being able to at least have an idea of some of the issues that this new technology is pointing us to in terms of uh, the future. Very quickly, David Velasco, Z. Cohen Sanchez, uh, Logan Phillips, Doug, my good friend Doug Levy, Denise Hamilton, as our regular contributors. Why don't you just literally just two lines, tell us where people can find you on the socials. David Velasco, over to you. Where can people find you on social media, sir, and what you're working on at the moment? You can find me on Twitter at David Velasco. You can find me on Substack um, at Velasco, V-O-L-O-D-Z-K-O dot Substack dot com. It's the radicalist I cover political Z, where can people find you? You can find us at Soul Strategies. That's S O L E strategies.com. And we're the same handle on all of our social media, Soul Strategies. Logan Phillips, my good friend, where can people find you on social media and tell us all very quickly about Race to the White House? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at LoganR2WH and then at race to the WH.com, race to the White House. I'm covering the Senate, the presidential election, and the GOP primary. I'm tracking polling on a deeper level than you'll probably find anywhere else updated daily. Doug Levy, over to you, sir. You can find me best these days on Facebook, Doug Levy PR, all one word. Or occasionally, I'm on the platform we used on Twitter, at Seth Doug. And Denise Hamilton, where can people find you on social media or just on the internet generally? I am official DHAM in all of the places. And my new book, Indivisible, is available for pre-order wherever you buy your books. And I've been Royfield Brown. I've been your host. This has been me. But as somebody who is a functioning dyslexic, I can tell you I have embraced the world of AI with gusto. But like many people, not realized until now that I've been using these tools extensively for years. Spotify, how does it do its recommendations? AI. And in terms of extreme personalization, there you go. That's one of the key engines of Spotify. What has bowled me away is that now I can say I have an idea for an intro and I get the intro. Invariably, I always change it, but it gives me that spark. And as somebody who um, is a one-man band who creates at least four, at least three, if not four podcasts a week, the fact that I can use 
Adobe Enhanced, which is an AI tool, specifically in an environment like this, where there are so many people from other bits of the world on different mics, and then mix them down so they all sound that they're in the same room and in the studio is all down to AI. To the person that says these are tools, absolutely they are tools. And the way in which we will get the best out of them is by A, still injecting our own unique personality into what is whatever is created by them because otherwise we'll get generic slop if we're not careful and we'll have an avalanche of content which will be meh at best but if we can put our human stamp on it these things can be incredibly incredibly productive and creative and as Denise says if you are a small business person you have to rub your tummy and pat your head at the same time while juggling hula hoops this tool allows you not just to be meh at doing all of those things but potentially to shine in those different fields so uh, for that reason and that reason alone i'm definitely pro ai but this is a time where we need our politicians actually to step up because the concentration of power in the hands of five six seven eight companies in terms of writing this is going to be the detriment of us as citizens and of humanity and on that note that's me roy for brown signing off Thank you. And don't forget, left to center politics is right thinking politics. And what we are all about is trying to kill, stamp, murder the neoliberal order, which has exacerbated wealth inequality uh, for the last 40 years. So join us in that campaign. That's been me, Royfield Brown, with David Z, Logan, Doug, Denise, when we're joined by Rick, Rablaka, Dr. Keisha, and Eric, and hopefully you've enjoyed this mid-atlantic take care look after yourselves bye-bye tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts good news ad-free listening is available on amazon music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your prime membership Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.